I was super excited when I was like, oh, you know, nature's going to be a podcast. Oh, that's great. Because there's not too many people that have a career progression where they have a business analysis in their background. And then not only do they have agile coach slash scrum master, but then they're in product. And I'm like, this is everything that I wish to talk about in mind. All my dreams uh, have come true. So my mission comes down to, I want to change the way we work. And all the steps throughout my career have kind of been leading toward that mission. And even beforehand, a lot of my training, my education, all kind of goes into it as well. So my undergraduate degree was actually in anthropology, archaeology, again, very, very different than IT. Mm -hmm. But what I found by understanding more about just people over time, what's what's common about humanity, what's common about cultures, different cultures and different areas over time. It's really helped me understand more about just better ways to work. So again, undergraduate degree, totally different. I was self-taught in technology. I did go on to get an MBA. That really helped me also understand just businesses, how they work, yeah, yeah. the language they speak. And of course, I've gotten various certifications over the years, again, kind of continuing with the training and the education. But the common thread for me throughout all of this has really been around user experience and agility, kind of that discovery and really human-centeredness of it. That's fantastic. It's interesting you say that your degree was not in IT or technology, because I've met so many people who are now in the agile space that don't have a technical background, right? Uh, and I was gonna say knocking it out of the park. Yeah, mo most people that I've interacted with, their degree is not in, I think I'm one of the only people whose degree actually is in uh, information technology of some, some way, shape, or form, yeah. other than the few people that I've met that are uh, computer science majors, mm -hmm. and then they're just uh, from another planet. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I've had technical jobs. I mean, one of my earlier jobs was working in, I was a front-end web developer, designer. But again, it that was so far back in the day that I was self-taught, and yeah. that was perfectly sufficient. This was back when websites were still fairly new, um, more brochures than interactive. Mm -hmm. And it was much easier to teach yourself back then how to do these things. So again, I was doing the technology work, and it was interesting because... It took me a little while, but I did figure out what that common thread was between what my love of technology is and my love of like the past of humanity, archaeology. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was that sense of newness, that sense of discovery of, of Eureka. There's always something new when it comes to technology or there's new ways of applying technology. Whereas with like archaeology, you're always uncovering new things about the past or understanding new things about people, about groups of people in the past. So again, that was another little common thread I found why I was, you know, so fired up about both technology and humans and ancient humans and, and just as I said, that common thread running throughout my career. I think that's amazing because most successful agilists have had backgrounds, at least by training anyway, in those kinds of areas as opposed to just pure technology. It's, it's funny, it's, it's, I was having a conversation with someone not too long ago around how do, do we use our degrees? That was the mm -hmm. topic of the conversation, right? And he's that's like, well, I never use my degree. I don't know if that's true, really. When you think about it, you think about what you do day in, day out. You may not be wiring hardware if you have a hardware degree, as I do. Mm -hmm. Hardware, hardly anybody does that these days. It's, it's robotics, right? But somebody has to design the robots and somebody has to program them. So yeah. we, we, this is kind of 
interesting to me because at that at that discussion it turns out that they started with no we don't use our degrees his degree was in geography and he's been exploring all his life right yeah. even in, even while he's in the actual space he's doing that mm -hmm. new way of working and discovering new things yeah and cultures company cultures trying oh. to navigate them my my cultural anthropology classes really prepared me to understand it to not judge companies to try to understand them where they're coming from at the place where they are right now again all sorts of things that i use on a regular basis that i never would have thought i would use it in that way but it just turned to work out that way culture is coming more and more into the discussions these days it wasn't always the case 20 years ago let's yeah. say or before that we didn't care about cultures. It was just an organization. You go, you work. Until the day you retire, you collect your gold watch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Look at it now. It always I mean, should have been in the conversation you know. when you're talking about it. Like any company is just a system. You know what I mean? And like yeah. the, if you, if you, oh boy, I'm jumping ahead to podcasts. If you are not directing where the system is going, the system is going to degrade into the worst parts. So the worst patterns are going to come out if you're not directing it. And uh, I mean, I've been at a bunch of companies where that's true. They don't have a handle on it. Or, or they're blind to their culture. They don't know what their culture well, is. I yeah. think that's closer to the truth, yeah. to be honest, because those kinds of companies don't acknowledge and accept the fact that organizations are organic. They're mm -hmm. complex, adaptive systems, right? They're groups of people. That's right, exactly. Yeah. It's the human element that makes them unpredictable and non-prescriptive in a way, mm -hmm. and you kind of figure it out as you go as opposed to we'll do these things and it'll be fine yeah and every company has a culture yeah it's just if you aren't cognizant of it if you don't try to shape it in a positive way it's going to kind of grow organically it's yeah. just part of getting groups of people together is we just keep up and form our own dynamics so ignore it at your peril yeah, yeah. i agree I want to keep uh, digging because uh, I want to go down the route because we just came off a podcast of Taylorism is like the roots of uh, modern management theory, like uh, mm -hmm. all of modern management theory, basically, because yeah, yeah, American management theory anyway, because America basically ignored Deming. So like he doesn't really count in the management. He should, but he doesn't really count in the management theory. I guess now things are kind of changing, especially when agility enters the career field, things are or in, in into the field, things are kind of changing a little bit. But I also don't because we will straight beat. Like I said, I will talk until we're not going to run out of film. Like that, this. That's a marathon podcast that's yeah. coming soon. Uh, yeah. So at what point did agility enter the picture in your career? So it was a complete surprise because it was this very short, like three month contract I had where I was just dropped into a company. I was doing some systems analyst work there and it, it was just happening around me where I didn't know what it was. They weren't calling it out by name, but I noticed it was a very different way that they were working than what I was used to before. Like they would have, I think the thing that probably stood out the most was they would have these, um, it took up most of the day. It was their end of sprint review. The entire company was invited. It was probably about 60 people. Huh. It was all the teams back to back and they would talk about what they accomplished in the previous two weeks and it was to they just acted like it was perfectly normal but to me I was like this is interesting this is it but it was nice to know what was going on throughout the company and it was again just 
I was just kind of dropped into it without any explanation, you know, because I'm a contractor, I'm just in there to get a job done. And then when I got the job done, I, I was just plucked back out again. But it was this it's a little eye-opening. Well, that was a curious sort of way of working. And it, it was actually in my very next job where they were traditional waterfall, very old established company had been around for many decades and shortly after i joined they said oh we we're doing things too slowly we want to go through a whole agile transformation so then when they started talking about these concepts again i'm like oh wait that sounds familiar i know <laughs> like i i recognize this i know this and so that got me really fired up about it because i was like oh no that that was great like i thought it was a really good experience so yeah the very first time i encountered it i didn't really know what it was because they didn't like explain everything to me it was just the way they worked yeah. they didn't make a big thing out of it but the, again when I finally encountered it the next time then it was like oh, sign me up I want to be on the team that starts it I want to be on that pilot team and yeah it was history ever since then that's that, that's, that's amazing because what I'm what I'm finding is people when they go through a similar kind of curve what they do is initially they feel like what are these teams doing for example if you come from the traditional waterfall environment and you've been dropped in it mm -hmm. as, as you described it the first thing that people grapple with is these teams are working for only two weeks at a time and they don't have all of those requirements so they because you fall back to what you best yeah mm -hmm. you know, and so People fight that internally, at least, right? They fight that and go, well, how are these teams muddling through in two-week increments when they don't have all the requirements? Where are they? I want to see those. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you approached it with a, an open mind and, and you looked at the way they were delivering value to the organization, right, mm -hmm. through that review that the whole company was invited at and took that on, on board at your next gig, which is fantastic, yeah. yeah. So I struggled with that myself is when I first got into it, I went through a similar thing, but different in the mm -hmm. sense that when they talk about backlogs, I'd expected that backlog to be completely fleshed out because mm -hmm. I came from a waterfall environment. Yeah. And I'm looking for being a project manager, I'm looking mm -hmm. for sign-offs. Uh, had the requirements signed off? Why are we even working on this stuff if it's moving, right? Yeah. And so I struggled with that at that phase of my journey. And then I got trained in, in Agile. and my outlook completely change yeah mm -hmm. you know it's that you just do just enough and you discover along the way it's that that principle we welcome changing requirements even late in the process yeah, yeah. Uh, that didn't sit well with me at first mm. right because i thought well, how will we know when we're done the only way in my mind was when we have these very detailed very elaborate requirements and signed off and we'll mm. deliver that which i'd done for years prior to that as a traditional waterfall person yeah but yeah this was a very welcome eye-opening change yeah and i had also done a lot of that project management very traditional waterfall and i also did a lot of client facing projects custom projects and i saw time and time again that no matter how many conversations you had how buttoned up the requirements were there were always changes always unless it's the simplest just color by dots, very simple, very easy sort of thing you're trying to do, there was always a change. Yeah. And so when I became more aware of you know, what Agile was and what it was trying to accomplish, for me, it was like, well, that just makes sense. Like, because otherwise you're, you're trying to be too perfect and there's right. no way you can be perfect all the time. You guys. 
Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Tell do, us your trick. Do, do you do you bring that in a product now? Like, hey, we are uh, we're not going to be perfect, so like let's let's just start on something. Let's just get started on something. Yeah, like, and it's a matter of you try something, you learn from it, you you take that learning, you adjust, and you you keep building, you keep refining. I, I heard somebody explain that today, uh, especially when they're when they're part of a program. They're like, our team is uh, trying things, and then some things work and some things don't. And, and other teams in our program are trying things, and now we're sharing what are the... We talked about this before, like when you're part of a program, like at a large organization where you have many, many uh, teams in your program. Let's say you have like, I don't know, eight eight teams in your program. Like, I think that like some people will be like, oh, eight teams, Brian, that's, that's nothing. I've got 300 people in your program. No, you don't. Like, like, I'm a like, little wake-up call for you. you. Don't is when you're scaling with that many teams and everyone is retrospecting like what their mistakes were, or what they could be doing better, or whatever. Ideally, you will be learning from the other people's best practices. So now it's like you're multiplying the mistakes that you have made and learned from over the whole program it, when you're doing it right. Unless That's you're doing key. retrospectives, but in really uh, in re- reality, it's like you are punished for making. <laughs> yeah, mistakes. you're just checking a box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're not true. We're not showing my bias for what I want to talk about. We already were kind of on this topic about like what what really clicks. You know, what I mean, what you've taken to becoming passionate about in agility. I found what really clicks with me is looking at it from the perspective of teams, creating really empowered teams that are healthy and mature, and I mean. I have seen some amazing things done by teams that had a lot of trust, very cooperative, very helpful. Again, just creating a space where teams can be like that, it's it's amazing. Like, And I've also seen teams go through the transformation where literally they were just kind of working in their own little tasks and just, I mean, effectively, they could have been individual contributors. Right, yeah, yeah. The, the team was just, it, it was in a name alone, and then, like over time, as they started to work together and they started to really support each other and to combine their superpowers, that's really where you get the great effects. They're more than just the sum of their parts. What are the signs that that's happening? The, the reason I ask that is because I had at a client that I was at as a contractor or a consultant, whatever. I, I told them that it was going to happen. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm gonna, uh, I'll embed with your teams. And I'll uh, set up your product and I'll be like, you talk to me, don't talk to the team. Just talk to me about like when stuff's going to be done and yell at me or whatever. Don't yell at teams. And once I cut that off and there was no more negativity impacting the teams from the business and it was only directly to me, (laughs) it wasn't a good thing. I told them, you will know when your team has got to the next level because uh, now they will start contributing ideas to your product. Mm Mm-hmm. I was like, because uh, 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 that just wasn't happening. The team was just like, they were being quiet and they were told what to do and then they'd go do it. And then they sometimes they wouldn't turn in exactly what the business wanted. So they'd take it in the next sprint and back and forth, back and forth. And they never got any ideas from the team members. Mm-hmm. I was like, these guys know exactly how your product works in every single detail. I was like, why are you not eliciting any requirements from your team members? Just because that just wasn't the environment. The feeling that they could uh, create and contribute to the product roadmap just wasn't there. Yeah. And that that was the first time. I was like, when you see this happening, your culture's changing. Mm-hmm. And I, I sure enough pointed it out as soon as I saw it happen. I'm like, did you guys see that? Did you guys see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd say it's not just the usual outspoken ones doing that, but even the quieter team members mm-hmm. contributing and, and giving those ideas. That, for me, is the real test because 
I know quite often you'll have at least one or two of the talkers on the team and and they'll typically try to influence a little here and there but even when the quieter people when they start really contributing that's a good sign I think from a team level yeah it's a it's a really good sign in in that kind of um I want to say behavior, but that should be encouraged and, and nurtured. I, I found the same with teams, but I've also found with leadership that resistance with the mindset, right? Oh, yeah. So going in saying, look, this is not going to be perfect, I'm telling you now, but we'll learn from the mistakes, mm-hmm. right? We inspect and adapt, go forward from there. And at some point, the, the product owner came on board and he, and he basically started to say the same thing and say, yeah, this is not 100%, but 80% is good enough. And lo and behold, in this particular organization, it was a large multinational. And the product owner and most of IT rolled up under under the uh, CFO. Yeah. So lo and behold, when in one of the meetings, he said, wait, did you just say 80% is good enough? Mm-hmm. Why am I then paying for the other 20%? And I thought, oh. right? So I've, I've had those kinds of... I would expect that from CFO. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you know, they're, they're geared that way, yeah. right? So what they're, we have to do is just retract. They're the retract. gang boss. <laughs> yeah, they are the gang boss. Exactly. That's right. And it, it takes time to get through. So the way we kind of tackle that in that specific instance, I'll never forget that, is to change the vocabulary. We, we changed the vocabulary that we were using in front of that C-level troop of people. Sure. Instead of talking about 80% is good enough, we would simply say we met our objectives. Right mm-hmm. for the sprint, we met him. Yeah. That's it. The object, one of the objectives was to learn this sprint from whatever we're working on that sprint. So whether that was a paragraph or it was a chapter, it didn't matter. We learned, yeah. and it was a, a checkbox. And yeah. they said nothing after that, right? But over a few months, they came around. Most of them did. Not not all of them did that, no, no. but most of them came around and they said, "We're delivering better now than we were before." Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about six months before even the first first pe- person will say, "Yeah, this is better now than it used to I be." This, yeah. Some of those diehards are never going to come around. They, they're never going to understand. This is one of the very early things that I did was I added learnings into the backlog as a category of work item. I'll put it because I wanted to say in development there are things that you have to do before you can be sure that you can take on some type of work item, whatever it is, right? I mean, mm-hmm. oh, I got to go vet out a new technology. I got to go do some spike work to figure out whatever. I wanted to say, okay, well, everything like that, I want to be able to capture it and say X percentage of our time, time, it's not really time, X percentage of our effort, basically, effort, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, goes into learning things, whatever that, whatever that learning is, right? Because on other teams, yes, you'll have that one guy in the organization that's like, why are you learning on my time? Why am I paying you to go to school or whatever? Which is an absolutely ludicrous outlook. It's crazy. It, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It sounds crazy to say out loud, but there's so many people I've encountered in corporate America that are like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to pay for like, Why? You don't want your team to improve? But actually, no, they'd rather go out and hire somebody who already has a skill set, who learned it on their own time, and then pay whatever 30 percent more for that person those are the companies that oh boy i'm like this is, <laughs> i don't know how much somewhere. of this i'm gonna leave those are the companies that they got budget for hiring yeah. but they don't have budget for give people raises like that's those companies and they'll pay yeah. many times more i yeah. mean it's not just the increment of somebody who has the skill set yeah. it's yeah. when they come in now there's onboarding they've got to learn so yeah 
Yeah, they don't have uh, time for any of that. Like, oh, none no. of that's baked into the budget. Like, your first X number of weeks are not going to be, you're not really going to contribute like that. Mm-hmm. They don't figure that. They're like, day one, you should be contributing 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Full blast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Think, things in Agile that, that aggravate you or that people get wrong or topics or trends or subjects that, that that's that's what we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, even though I, I explained this today, and I think this is like another recurring thing on the podcast. It's like when you join an organization, you never really know where the little bubble of agility starts this comes out of the the product the podcast that we did with trisha where we were talking about the engineers enter the bubble of agility too late you had people over here come up with a bunch of requirements and then they decided we were going to build feature xyz or sales was like we got to have this feature and it's got to be basically solution work not knowing anything technical and and they've done it in phases and they've sold it with a date and now it enters your bubble of agility where you're like, oh, let me just take it. And yeah. It's like, cool, you do whatever you want with Agile as long as you deliver 100% of it by this, this arbitrary date. date. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, so it's it's the same old traditional, traditional until you get to the developers yeah. and they go, okay, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead and do Agile stuff. And then, yeah. again, traditional, yeah. traditional, right? That, mm-hmm. That's my type of thing with yeah. this topic is like when you're adopting any kind of agility in your organization, it mm-hmm. needs to span the whole organization. Yeah. This is where when they don't understand what true business agility means they just simply focus on the dev team and then they focus on the metrics that are also mm-hmm. vanity metrics right yeah so overall as a business you're not agile still right. maybe your dev team is going toward agility and even if they reach that you're still not agile as an organization yeah. right yeah. you can't respond to change changing conditions in the market whatever it is yeah, right? and, and so you still fall foul of the same things that you would have done had you not taken your dev team agile yeah they just see it as a little bit of the process and they can just drop it in and they don't see the whole system they don't see the whole mindset behind it the values that they really should be trying to live it's yeah and you can't just take it as a little chunk of process right i've been looking at company prospectuses prospecti what's the plural Bunch of uh, prospectuses. <laughs> it's where they say what they're all about, what their values are, mm-hmm. and all of that good stuff, right? And increasingly, I'm finding most of those incorporate language mm-hmm. around business agility. They throw those terms in there. So mm-hmm. it's a way we're, we're adopting greater business agility. And then when you dig deeper, you're finding there's really nothing different <laughs> they're doing. So why even say that? Because if you didn't say yeah. that, it wouldn't be an expectation. Now you're saying it. Now mm-hmm. you're up there with the other runners that truly are, even if they're not 100% there, they're on their way, right? Yeah. But you're not actually doing anything yep. uh, toward that. So I'm finding that surprisingly, mm-hmm. right? And I, I'm saying a lot of these companies are technical companies, like technology-based mm-hmm. companies that say that. Yeah, right? where they just relabel what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. They're just right. using the new buzzwords. Yeah. I'll follow where you're going with this one because that, that's what I've run into a lot is uh, mm-hmm. we just relabel our project managers. Or worse is a project manager slash scrum master in the job description. Which, by the way, Oma, I have to say, uh, the job descriptions out there, I think they're getting worse. They are uh, getting they're worse. They're not getting, like, since we yeah. did our job description podcast, they're getting worse. So I see another job description, like current job roles out there. I see another one in our near future. Mm-hmm. Like in the in the next probably six weeks, we should do another one. Just just source with the jobs that are out there. This I, I is fresh collecting. in my mind because last night this came up as a topic. Oh really? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Job descriptions? Yeah. 
<laughs> job descriptions and and what do we do like we're, we're stuck right yeah so yeah. we have to educate people and it's hard to do yeah and i also find it's even harder because i've talked to hr people before and they don't even understand the role which makes it hard for them to know if it's a good job description they're they're trying to get feedback from different people and it's being written by committee and it they're copy pasting from other places and it's that's why it's kind of frankenstein together the way it quite often is and it's never exactly what you're going to be doing it's right i find it's usually all the things that might theoretically be done but the things you actually do might not even be there. What's interesting is when you get HR people who actually try to use a more agile approach toward recruiting, because there are a few groups out there like that. And, it, and it's, it's very interesting because that opens up their eyes, that helps them to understand and do better recruiting for those types of roles, just because they're more familiar with it. They get it, they're doing it themselves in a way. It's coming up now, agility in that field, it, you know, agility in mm-hmm. HR and marketing. I'm mm-hmm. seeing more traction in so, those two areas. I worked at an organization where one of the HR groups, in fact, the VP of HR reached out to me because they were looking at their own internal reward system, how they do bonuses, things like that. Oh. And they said, hey, we want to do this in a more agile way. Traditionally, it was they come up with their own ideas as a group and write it up, call it a day, and the employees are all mad about it. <laughs> you know, you, with, but the thing was, I walked them through a process where they were getting feedback from people. They were really kind of brainstorming, iterating, taking that feedback, coming up with new concepts. And it, it was just so refreshing. And they loved it. That was the best part yeah. of all. They, yeah. were, they loved getting the feedback. They loved iterating through it and making improvements and knowing that what they were going to come up with, people... I mean, maybe not everyone would love it, but a lot of people would actually find it more valuable. Mm -hmm. They would find it more relevant to them. They would know they'd been part of the process. And so it was just fascinating the way, yeah, in that organization, those HR people just adored agility. It was was quite refreshing. (laughs) I'd love to see some examples like that, success stories, if you will, from finance. That would be good. Maybe we can get a finance person in. That might be a taller order, but we'll try. This is what happens when you dig your way out of the right-handed ditch, and then you land in the left-handed ditch. (laughs) I'm digging to fill the other ditch, and then dig it again. (laughs) That's what I'm doing. Guardrails on the whole podcast are completely off right now. None of them are working. I don't know. What else? Uh, I'm opening the floor. What can we fix? Actually, this segues right into the, 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 the second category which is what is the next iteration of Agile, Agile 2.0. Snap, snap your fingers and fix something in Agile that's broken. So what does the next Agile look like, Agile 2.0 or whatever you want to call it? Yeah, or, I mean, or maybe know? it doesn't need have people Tomorrow's pay attention Agile. to the principles and the values. and. Yeah, getting back to the basics, to the core principles. Not getting hung up on the jargon and the labels, but really thinking about the core ideas, the mindset, the values behind it, because it's things like values that drive behavior. Mm-hmm. That's what drive actions. What are your thoughts on, to that end, the whole Heart of Agile initiative, where everything's basically boiled down into mm-hmm. four things? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's it's elegant. It's the simplicity. You don't have to have a lot of flowery language about it. That's true. It. It distills it. It makes it so that everyone can very clearly see it, understand it, communicate it. 
I like the fact that it fits on a pin or a badge, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, how, yeah. That's as summarized as you can get it. So that's fantastic. Yeah. In your in your mind, what what are some of the things that you might change if you were to rewrite the manifesto mm. to bring it current? Because it has been a while. Right? Yeah. And so yeah, it's it. So. I, I doubt that the the original authors would go back and update it for various reasons. Well, we're not going there today, but oh, yeah. yeah. We, we're definitely keeping it on its uh, 1999 web server. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it is now old enough to drink, even in oh, the U.S. Man. It's true, it's it is. signed February 2001. PHP 1.0. No, whatever it was. Yeah, so how would you change that to kind of make it more aligned or suitable to reflect today's work environment? Because one of the things that has changed in all that time is the cycle of discovery. The knowledge cycle mm-hmm. has really compressed. Mm-hmm. If you take your time like you used to do, not even that far back, maybe half that, you know, binary mm-hmm. chop, half that, right? That's too long today. Mm-hmm. Your competitors will eat your lunch. So you've got to move fast. And so to me, it's, it's, it's worthwhile looking at what can we change? But I'm not sure what that might be, mm-hmm. to be honest. I think one thing it's really missing is different perspectives. It was written by 17 white male developers. It's literally the manifesto. <laughs> yes. It's and and what's really sad is I mean yeah in specifically in software women have other minorities have been underrepresented but even back in that day there were people they could have invited people who were well known in the software industry who were influencers thought leaders and it's funny because the one that came to mind so Rebecca Wirfsbrock she came to mind because I bumped into her at an agile conference a few years ago and my husband was with me at the time and he turned into a complete fanboy because well, she is known for being literally writing the book on object-oriented software design. Mm-hmm. And he studied in the book that she wrote. And when he recognized her on site, he asked her to sign his laptop. Like it was, <laughs> it was a little embarrassing, but, but and again, she, she wrote that back, back, book back in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. She was well-known. They, even someone like her could have been invited just to give a different perspective. And I think that's one thing that really could be introduced today is getting people's different views mm-hmm. and not making it as software centered. And granted, because they were all software developers, that's their lens, yeah. that's what they're focused yeah. on. So I, I totally understand that at the time, but definitely think it could be more broadly interpreted. I know a lot of other individuals have tried to reinterpret it over the years, but that's really where I see there being a few opportunities is reinterpreting it, not leaving it chiseled in stone mm-hmm. and looking at it through different perspectives and not just software. Yeah, I agree. I think that phrase where it says we find better ways to build software. So the focus back then was software, but it's being adopted in all sorts of other places mm-hmm. now. Maybe some yeah. some reframing is needed there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I know when I've trained organizations or even just working with some of those HR people, when they look at it and they see software, they're like, we're not building software. Yeah. And it makes it a little harder for them to relate to. But they're like, well, does that apply to me and what I'm doing? Right. It's, Am I a developer, right? Because yeah. it talks about developers. So, yeah. Now, I've had that conversation with leadership 
when they look at that and they say, how does mm-hmm. this apply to us? We're yeah. leaders, developers are those pointy heads over there. Mm-hmm. We're, no, we're all developers, we're develop the work. That's why we're not crafting code, but we're developing the work, mm-hmm. we're taking it forward, we're progressing it. Mm-hmm. That makes us all developers. You're kind of coming at it from a defensive posture at that point yeah, and you're, because of that language, yeah. largely, right? So you're translating yeah. it. You're you're trying to make it apply, make sense, make it more general. You said to solicit input other than just software or just development or certainly being more inclusive with different minorities. What about functional areas? Representation from testers, representation from business analysts. Mm-hmm. What about what do you think about that? Because all of these things play into it. Whether you're building software or not, you still have people that are validating, not necessarily running automated tests, but validating the product, whatever the product is. People that are engaged in the the requirements side of things. Well, I I know for a fact that, because I've heard heard a few people say that they they did invite women to the conference, it's just none of them showed up. Now, I'm not going to defend that statement because I don't know what that means. You know I mean? there's a lot of parties I could invite a lot of different people to, and it's pretty much uh, implied that they really shouldn't. It's not in their best interest to show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I might be a tester, and if I'm the only tester in the room, showing up to a bunch of developers uh, complaining about how testers are terrible, like, maybe I don't want to just spend a whole weekend in a ski lodge getting yelled at uh, by yeah. a bunch of developers. Or maybe I don't want to uh, climb that mountain of trying to change all these people's opinions. I, 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 like, that's why I don't want to be a scrum master anymore. I'm real tired of, like, in, in product, when I say I need something or we won't progress until we change whatever X, Y, Z about the business, even if it's a cultural thing about the business, leadership will basically drop what they're doing and put some thought or effort into changing whatever. And then when I'm a scrum master and I say the same thing, then I got I got to fill out some reports and I got to pull some <laughs> metrics together and I got to get the tech leads together to get their opinion and build some consensus. But but I have researched this a bit as well. It's like they, the BAs, testers, project managers, all those, like they were trying to cut those people out. That mm-hmm. That's why those people likely did not show up or weren't yeah. invited. I don't really know. That. Honestly, I don't really know. But I, I know for a fact they were trying to cut BAs out because I've heard somebody directly say, we didn't need BAs. We didn't want somebody interpreting requirements. We wanted to talk directly to customers and get requirements. I do have strong feelings about that <laughs> statement, but I'll, I'll leave that alone for right now. I just wanted to add that context. <laughs> no, I, I certainly can see the, the other side of it. Even before working in Agile, I'd had developers meet with customers, and, and it was the annual user conference. Hmm. So the first day was just listening to the customers complain, because that's part of it, and noting everything that they talk about. And then the next day, it's a two-day conference in some nice location. The next day, the company got to show off some of their newer products. And the gap there was, well, nobody asked them what they want, but we built something, and here it is. Mm. Right, so the developers are there, and, the, and of course, in, inevitably, people talk, and the customer says, "Well, wouldn't it be nice if we could do this?" And the developer almost takes it on as a challenge, and they'd say, "Oh, sure, we can do that." And now it became a promise. So, because I'm across it's, the table as a yep. PM at the time, but I'm, hey, listen, if you say you can do that, what they're hearing is you will do that, right? Yes, for them, right? Right. So I would. Put a lid on that because that was my job. It's control scope, right? Control cost. Mm-hmm. And now it's, it's turned on its head. Now it's like, well, 
if we did this, would this be a value? What else would you like, yeah. right? And if they say that, so, well, we'll get back to you. But yeah, that's that's great. Thanks for the feedback. So that's been my kind of my own like personal yeah, yeah. transformation, whatever yeah. you know, call it. Well, it, it's funny because now, like now, we're back in the same space uh, where instead of the project manager uh, blocking and tackling, now the product people are blocking and tackling and trying to like, oh, developers aren't good in front of people. Ooh, if you let the developers talk to people, they'll commit to stuff and they'll get themselves underwater. Like now, you know, what I mean, yeah. I, I I see product people trying to do the same thing that project managers were trying to do back in the day. And I, like I'm not, I don't know if it's good or bad, but that, I, I do see that. It's, I think it's part and parcel of the reason yeah. why product managers and project managers are getting conf- confused with each other as roles mm-hmm. from people yeah. that don't understand it from the outside yeah. looking in, right? I don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> You're from the inside looking out. Yeah. You don't understand it. What, what else can we change about being agile? I think it was a point we brought up a little bit earlier where really we should be looking at the organization as a whole system. Yeah. Where you can't just try to change a little part and expect it to work perfectly with... You really have to look at the whole thing. Ironically, that's part of part of Agile now. We talk about optimizing the whole, getting away from local optimization. Mm-hmm. And yet, in practice, that's really what's going on from yeah. an organizational perspective, right? There's little pockets of agility, but then there are these huge swaths of non-agility. Mm-hmm. This is already one that I've kind of been thinking of as a podcast. Like, I'm going to lean in a little closer. Like, it's a secret. This is kind of one that I've already been thinking about, which is when you're bringing in, when you're trying to avoid that bubble of agility that we were mm-hmm. talking about, usually when agility enters a company, it's entering inside of the Trojan horse of Scrum, right? And it's entering with a team or two or maybe some development teams or whatever. But the real thing that should be entering should be agility, and then whatever framework falls at, right? That That is not the way that most people that I have worked with have adopted it. It's one of their development teams or some somebody, some executive or somebody, you know what I mean? Like, says, oh, we got to go agile or whatever. But uh, most of the time, it's been grassroots up. Mm-hmm. Somebody starts changing and then someone gets wind of it and then maybe it catches up. It's not a strategic direction from it, the it, very yeah. top. It's, yeah. Just, yeah, it's yeah. very rare. It's, it starts with a model. Mm-hmm. And then it tries to work backwards from there. I think that's a whole podcast of its own to be like, what? How did it get like this? You know what I mean? And and why is like all the conversation of agility? Why is that wrapped up with Scrum? There should be some way to bring agility into a company without bringing your framework into a company. Like I, I would think that uh, Kanban would be a simpler introduction mm-hmm. of agility. Like think about it. this is what I'll say to actually bring this back into relevance. The the executive team. At any company, the C-suite at any company, they operate as an executive Kanban. They all do. Mm-hmm. Even if they don't write it down or actually have mm-hmm. a physical board somewhere or whatever, electronic board, they all work on stuff that is the most burning thing. They usually have more than one thing in the air at a time, but they can only work on one or two things at a time. And then they have a backlog of like stuff they know they got to get to, but they're not going to get it. You know what I mean? Stuff that they're waiting on other people. So stuff that's blocked, stuff that's that they're bottlenecking for other teams. Mm-hmm. They all have that, but very few of them visualize it mm-hmm. so that people can tell them and, and track work in progress and track the delay time and getting things through. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. Just basic concepts come on. And usually companies like that, they have teams doing scrum and then Transitioning teams from Scrum to Kanban is seen as like a more advanced step 
doing software development because it's like well you really got to have your stuff down you got to have your backlog kicked in you got to have your product uh, online you know what i mean your team has to know how to vet items i mean writing items and breaking them down should be a thing and then kanban is like a more advanced flow from getting started mm-hmm. with scrum and I, i'm just trying to think of like well you you all have the executives doing what you think is the most advanced they're just doing it in complete chaos without writing anything down yeah so like can we start there like would that be the way to go into companies be like let me start put somebody up at the leadership level just visualize what you guys are doing just visualize it don't change any don't change anything about what you're doing oh it's too hard to write cards i'll do that for you right, <laughs> right. It's just just 10 minutes in the morning get it all worked out i'll move the stuff do it for you and that's not even a full-time job doing that right mm-hmm. there if you did that successfully, you'd be instilling that lean mindset at the very beginning, right, you know, yeah. at the very top of the hierarchy. Right. That's the other thing we talk about in one of the other podcasts, is the hierarchies yeah. and how things morph. Right. Yeah. But yeah, definitely strong leadership and at the very top C-suite, whatever leadership looks like at an organization. If they were thinking more in a lean manner, right, then they would get more done, but they don't know that. So they got to be coached. Mm-hmm. by somebody yeah, yeah, yeah. right yeah. so they need a sidekick is all i'm saying just like the teams need to be coached yeah. by a scrum master mm-hmm. these guys too need a sidekick yeah. yeah a lot of people don't reflect on how they do things they just have always done things a certain way so being able to take that step back and say okay i'm going to write down what i'm doing i'm going to look at it i'm going to visualize it it's just not what they're used to they're just used to their habits their patterns so trying to break them out of it and make it a more conscious thing how do we work why do we work this way it's just not something people do every day yeah i think that's the proper entrance to agility in a Mm -hmm. company is right at the top just to say look i'm not trying to change the way you work Mm -hmm. i just want to visualize it first and then once you see it you will start realizing uh, like oh vp of opera like a vp of everyone only has two three work items in progress but vp operations has a 50 like something is wrong Mm -hmm. okay once and and, and that would take you literally whatever it took to to stand up the system to realize something is wrong because if things are not visualized how do you at a leadership level know something is wrong i mean you're right yeah i mean it's like the absolute bare bones basics of the the lean startup you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. like read the book and like all this is completely should be apparent this turned into my frustrations rather than your frustration. <laughs> i'm so sorry okay. uh, welcome to the podcast the final thing with this topic is i i, I have the thing that i keep coming back to where i'm like every scrum master you can say agile coach too it doesn't really matter every scrum master like you have your teams your development teams but then you also have the leadership team you, you have to work for them they're your shadow team you're your other team so your n plus one teams because if you don't if you're not arranging them like it, yeah of course they're sabotaging your stuff you need to help them do whatever your team is doing if nobody's doing that for them mm-hmm. i mean it's certainly valid to say that a scrum master isn't just focused on their team they also need mm-hmm. to be coaching the organization the scrum mm-hmm. guide specifies that now and they need to be coaching the product owner yeah. as well yeah, yeah. if they're not already of the lean thinking mindset mm-hmm. right or agile mindset i should say but very few scrum masters actually do this yeah because their focus is largely team-based right yeah well they're contained in development and like that that's mm-hmm. the, that would be you know like if we're talking about like ne- next level agile or whatever agile 3.0? I don't, I don't know what it would yeah. be. I have no, no idea. Uh, like, that would be my contribution because all the 
organizational management, all the change management, organizational psychology. Mm-hmm. None of that is in development. None, none, like, none of that's in the technology department. None, none of the people in the de- technology department, maybe somebody has a degree in organizational psychology. Maybe. Usually not in my experience. No. But uh, like mm-hmm. all the skill for that, it's there somewhere in the organization. Mm-hmm. It's probably not in technology. The change here that we're talking about is encompassing the entire organization rather than saying like, wow, we're just going to, how we build the products or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like how you build the products is going to be heavily influenced by all the stuff that comes before you and and above you, whatever Mm -hmm. you want. I don't know a good way to say it in the organization. Exactly. I mean, it's all the things that lead into that part of the little agile bubble. Do you have the financing you need to be able to do things in small delivery cycles? Do you have the goals, that vision, that direction being shared with those teams so that then they can keep moving toward that. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's really looking at the, the whole system. You've you, you got the finances to, to do things as you need in January through June. And then, <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah. when it's, when <laughs> and then in the later parts of the year, when the budgeting starts uh, coming to around October, when it starts looking like uh, you're running out of money, Suddenly, you need all the the requirements up front and all the design up front and all the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Got to fire all your teams and spin them all back up in January, second week of January. And then you'll have illusion of success. That's right. Yeah. It all depends on how you define it. Exactly. Like I said, when we started or before we started, I don't remember. I have no memory of these at this point. <laughs> the, like One of the reasons I started doing the podcast is because I, I, like, I wanted to sit down with people that either, either I work with or were in the field or I interact with up until this point because I was like at, at some point in time I will look back and I'll be like, man, what advice would I give myself? Even when I look back at the early podcast, like, man, I, I have some advice uh, for myself a year ago about doing the podcast. So to that end, what advice would you give to yourself um, or, or others, really? Yeah, yeah. Or others, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, for me, and my career is a great example of it, I always am inspecting and adjusting. I believe we pull in that whole Kanban idea, plan, do, check, adjust. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's good for your career, for your life. It's because that way I'm always growing. I'm always evolving. I'm finding what's really giving me value, making me happy, what's fulfilling me. In fact, recently I read a book called Designing Your Life, where it takes a very design thinking approach to not just a career, but your entire life. And that's really what I've been doing without realizing it throughout my life as I'm you know, evolving my career, where I live, who I surround myself with, what I'm doing as hobbies. Like that's something that's evolved and changed over time. So I'd say keep, keep learning, keep changing, keep just evolving and just growing as a person. What else can you do, right? Because your career spans over several decades and you really don't know where you're gonna go you just know where you are and you may have a vision about Mm -hmm. two years out or five years out maybe Mm -hmm. but then beyond that the world's changing yes exactly what about yourself what what advice would you give yourself brian me yeah Uh, i don't have a tie but i can be i I can be brian uh, (laughs) i had a mind change when i read the carol dweck mindset book 
because mm. that's the book that talks about the fixed mindset versus a growth mindset mm. and everyone else uh, just kind of uses it as buzzwords but if you actually read the book like it yeah. <laughs> it, it does a lot to change your kind of how you look at things kind of mm. your view, viewpoint it was a big change for me because I, I realized that there was a lot of things that I was doing that uh, I was not happy with you know but I couldn't quite understand why and when I read the book I was like oh well, I, I get it now yeah it's how you frame it how you think about it it makes all the difference. It's 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 also like I, I have this very negative self talk that doesn't help me at all through life, mm-hmm. and that that's part of the like the mindset book is you you expect to be successful the first time you do something, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, or or you try to hide or diminish any kind of failure in any way, shape, or form rather than learning from it, and that's all hallmarks of mm-hmm. the fixed mindset. And I've worked with tons of people that are very, very stuck in it. Like most of the fear-based managers and stuff I work with are stuck in a fear mindset. And I wish I had read that book earlier in my career mm-hmm. because not, not, not just for myself, but it would have enabled me to realize that I'm stuck under managers or stuck in programs with people mm-hmm. that, you know, people that run the programs that are just, they're never gonna change. Mm-hmm. You know? And there's no motivation for them to change uh, yeah. in the program. So like, just get away from people like that. I don't know if that's good advice, but it, uh, it is, and it, it's also good to be aware that you can focus on yourself and you can change yourself, but it, you can't expect anyone else to change. You're right. Yeah. If they happen to change and they think that's a good thing for them, fantastic. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you kind of control yourself and the way you embrace the world and what you do, how you respond to it. You have more control over it mm-hmm. than sometimes you feel like you do. And again, you just you know, kind of take control of that and understand that you know, the rest of the world, you can try to influence it, but ultimately everyone's living their own lives. Are you telling me uh, you, you can't coach people that don't want to be coached? Is that, are you, get, I, you guys I, trying to tell I, me that? I, 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 I give don't know if I believe good, that. I, I give it a good heave-ho and then say, yeah. okay, good luck. Sometimes they have to find it on their own. Yeah. They have to be open to it. Uh, that what I've been doing wrong all these years? <laughs> I don't know. I just need to get different pair of chopsticks, as Mr. Miyagi would say. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Are there any people that you can think of that had a, a big influence on you throughout your career that come to mind? I feel like we don't spend enough time on the podcast generally talking about the people that influence us. Like That's a, true. When we delved into Ohm's career uh, a couple podcasts back, he talked about a few colorful characters uh, and jumping down manholes in his suit. In my formative years, professionally speaking, right? Uh, yeah, right out of college. But yeah, yeah. So, it, it, but that wasn't. I don't think that was at the beginning of my agile journey as such. Yeah, yeah. It was just the, my work life. Really, it, it was my first job. Didn't know what to expect. I had this degree. That was about it. What do you do with that now? Right? Jump, jump down manholes in suits. Jump, jump down manholes. Go up poles. Yeah, yeah fix suits. things. I like it. And, yeah. It just goes to show you how I just had that blinker view of work was, you know, and this was in, in, in the UK years ago, and mm-hmm. you always went to work, professionally at least, with a suit on. So that's what I did. Yeah. And uh, my first day at work, the workers, basically they laughed at me, you know, and they said, well, all right, hey, this is guy from HQ. Oh, no. So they're like, this, is what, this is what we're going to do. It was pouring rain, and they opened up a manhole cover. It's full of filthy water, and they oh. said, well, we're going to go down there. And find a wire that's not working with the telecommunications oh. and fix it. But uh, there's a lesson learned. Say, figure out your environment, dress accordingly. Who knew? But that that guy who ended up being my boss 
for two years at my first job, he heavily influenced my outlook on corporate business and work life. But what about yourself? Yeah. For me, it was, I'd have to say it was that first team, that agile team I worked with, where we went through that whole transformation together throughout the entire organization. Because that was the first time I'd really worked with a team where there, we were very very trusting, very high performing. We became a very mature team over that time. And that experience was amazing. Like there was such camaraderie. We really had each other's backs. We were always helping each other. It was just such a positive experience. And that just really makes the job a wonderful thing. Even if you're up against crazy challenges, like if you're doing it with a group like that, it, it doesn't matter as much if the work's hard because you're doing it all together. And it's just, it makes it so much more rewarding. And that's what I'm always trying to seek is that type of environment, that type of team that can be built up like that and really gel and really just make it a good place to work. Have you had that success repeated over time? So I tell you, for me, it, it's the biggest challenge is just keeping a team intact. Just when they escape out of forming, somebody leaves, somebody else joins, and we're right back down again we go. And, and it's nothing you can control. Yeah, and Usually. that's always part of the challenge is that is outside of your control. But it's something that I've had it happen a few times, and it's just been so wonderful. That's the sort of place where it's like, I want to go back to work every day because I'm working almost with friends. And I mean, people like that from that first team, I'm still in touch with a lot of them. And pre-pandemic, we used to go out to lunch occasionally and just keep in touch and just... and. And then when yeah. we get together, it was just like old times, just like we were back working together. <sighs> it's rare. I don't have that. Yeah. It's probably also a function of me moving around so much. But, mm-hmm. but even without that, my teams are always in a state of flux, and that's yeah. always a difficult thing, especially when you have leadership teams. that you, It takes longer, in my opinion. It takes longer to get to that place of trust with leadership because usually they view you through the lens of change. This guy's telling me all these things it's risky i know what i do i've done it for years Mm -hmm. it works at least i think it works and this guy's saying do it differently so it takes time and eventually just you start winning their trust somebody leaves somebody else comes in and you start all over again and usually those people that are resisting change will accelerate their Mm -hmm. resistance because somebody new comes in and they're now in alliance with this new guy Mm -hmm. yeah we really don't need all that stuff so it makes your job so much harder. So yeah. if you can have that, with it, whether it's a dev team or whatever team, that is incredible. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what you can do to kind of to land in that spot, yeah. basically, right? What I find is if it's modest change, like sometimes someone new will join, and in which case you just have to kind of adopt the person, get them familiar with the team, kind of bring them in, get them in, used to the team culture, the way we interact, just the team dynamics. Like I, I've been on teams where we we did bring in new people and they kind of became part of that team and it was Mm -hmm. all part of that magic. But again, if there's heavy disruptions, lots of people leaving, lots of people joining, I agree, it's so hard to kind of keep that culture, keep that camaraderie, that same feel if there is too much change. And with so much flux right now, it's hard to do, but when it happens, it's just, beautiful yeah yeah i agree absolutely (laughs) it's like that's the sort of thing that i just i I live for i I love trying to get to that place is this the first team from your interest to agility story or is this a different team well that's the team i think back to where we kept it going the longest yeah 
And I have had other teams where it was just like spending time with old friends. We really understood each other. We weren't afraid to challenge each other, call each other out. I mean, we did it all in, it was a positive reason. We, we weren't being negative about it. It was constructive. Mm-hmm. But again, it was something where everyone was generally good with it. And it's, it's, when we can get to that point in you know, the team development, it's just, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. Were you a scrum master or a BA or agile coach or what were you doing? I have been the product owner on one, scrum master, agile coach on another. So I, even from different perspectives, it's you know, it wasn't just because I was in a certain role. It was just kind of building up that trust and finding ways of being open and getting to know each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find that's actually part of the challenge, especially yeah, with a lot of remote work, because I work with a fully remote team is getting to know everyone on the team and mm-hmm. and building up that trust as a result and knowing ways you can joke around with each other and, and still have it be a, a good thing and no one takes it personally. <laughs> so as I said, just getting to know the team members, it's much trickier in a fully remote environment. Uh, the only reason I ask that because I'm wondering, like I definitely have an opinion, uh, <laughs> surprise, about forming trust with a team when you're a scrum master or an agile coach and when you're a product person. I think it's a completely different way of going about forming trust with the team. I wonder if you have a, a, a different opinion. I, I say yeah, it would be different because they, the team would be looking at each role differently. Yeah. Because the product owner should be that little CEO of the product. They should be providing the vision, the leadership, like someone to, to look to, to, to get that guidance. Whereas... Mm-hmm. Like if I'm as like a scrum master or agile coach, it's less around that that sort of forward vision and guidance and more around how can we find better ways to work together and how can we collaborate? As I said, just finding better ways, removing impediments. So kind of looking at it almost from more of a process perspective of interacting. So again, I'm sure that the team members would look at it differently depending on the role. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for going down that road uh, so I didn't have to because sometimes, sometimes meaning all the times, I uh, get sick of hearing myself talk on the podcast. <laughs> no, I, I, like I, I, I like I have the exact same opinion. The scrum master's job is to make sure that the system that the team is working in is not poison, uh, number one, right? Mm-hmm. And, and number two, that the system is actually helpful mm-hmm. to what the team is doing, all right? And then like... Uh, over time it becomes a place where everyone actually enjoys showing up to mm-hmm. product manager on the other hand completely a whole different set of like don't, don't first of all don't be too domineering like mm-hmm. st- stop asking people like how long is that going to take don't be a project manager i think that's what right. i'm saying now yeah i mean i absolutely agree right depending on the role the way you mm-hmm. obtain trust and the way you foster that relationships at least right that that varies um, a scrum master very much is equal to, in the team. You're part of the team. You're there with them every day. Ideally, as a product person, you should be as much as possible mm-hmm. anyway. But in many organizations, you know, one of the symptoms are the product owner is not dedicated. And that's, that's a, a big red flag. So consequently, they cannot spend enough time with the yeah. team, yeah. Which, yeah. which dings your ability to win that trust. Yeah. You know, it's, so yeah, I think you have to take a different viewpoint based on the role you're playing. Mm-hmm. The 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 logical place to take this 
conversation is the place that we've gone many many times which is companies that are like oh I'll just have my developers play the role oh play the role play the yeah. role yeah. but what you get is you get a somebody who does a part-time they're not they're yeah. not really they're not invested in it they're not, they're not going to go research organizational psychology mm-hmm. you're not going to in their free time they're not going to go to the leadership team and try to make allies and try to build relationships and try to put people together and it's not their forte to begin no, with but this yeah. is a great conversation and actually it's a pretty easy conversation to have with leadership when they say you know play the roles that fair enough mr ceo or cfo or whatever right today you're a cmo you're a chief marketing officer play the role yeah Let's see how that goes yeah. right and, and that's a short easy conversation because they will yep. understand yeah. what you mean when you well, phrase it that way it depends on who you talk to because i'm like if you're talking to the ceo especially if they're a founder of a company they're used to playing they're, many many roles yeah. if they're founder of the company but, they really yeah but at least they at least somebody in that role will understand like we said role too many times Uh, somebody in that role will at least understand uh, when i'm doing this over here all this other stuff's getting neglected that's right and they'll they will completely understand that so i don't know what you again this is the nice thing about being a product Mm -hmm. and why i'm never going back because uh, at least in product i can be like this is the stuff that has to happen Mm -hmm. and uh that's that's it so it's black and white coming from product when it's coming from someone who's trying to arrange your processes and stuff like that then it's there's wiggle room we can talk about it we can negotiate but again the the lean startup makes a point that says most companies that come up they just let the chaos happen and they they're like oh it's well we're getting what needs to get done it's chaos it's okay okay but uh, in the lean startup he goes the author goes out of his way i can't remember his name right now the author goes out of his way to say he's like no you should define all the processes when you're small because and then anything else that crops up that's chaos outside of that you should bring that into the process and make a process for it he's like because then uh, when your company gets bigger like you can't scale chaos yeah so from that perspective bringing the scrum master in and letting them let the executive team understand how they actually are working and then visualize work so that they have some some kind of boundaries around what they're doing and then making sure that every other team has some kind of process and it's not just absolute chaos that's such a super important job. I agree. I think it was Eric Reese. Eric Reese, that's right. Yeah, yeah you're right. Is. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a very valid point. A lot of organizations start small and have early success, mm-hmm. and then they look at that and go, "Well, well why mess with what's working?" Right? Mm-hmm. Chaos worked for us. Well, yeah. That, you kind of you yeah. muddle through it, yeah. but now you're scaling, and if you're scaling, yeah, your yeah. point is absolutely well, spot on. It's like every technical yeah. lead I've ever worked with that, that, like their developers are working like 40, 45, 48, whatever hours, and then the the tech leads, development leads, whatever, are like sixty hours minimum. Okay, because mm-hmm. the tech leads are not on any one team; they kind of span the teams, mm-hmm. or maybe they're in you know whatever departments, whatever it is. But they are working on some kind of tech lead Kanban that the things that kind of float between teams or things out of the backlog but they don't have it visualized anywhere so they're just burning the midnight oil working on everything basically they're doing leadership level stuff just like I was talking about a leadership team except now they're doing it in between teams and they don't have a scrum master because nobody assigns a scrum master to. so like again it's like if you're a scrum master on a team and you don't have we're not a small company you're not going to work at the CEO level but you can come up immediately above your teams to work at like the leads level mm-hmm. and pull all the cross-functional leads together 
and uh, maybe you can work with them. So I, I, don't, I don't even know what this has nothing to do with the podcast topic that we started with, but I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we're here too. And I, I actually agree with that. A scrum yeah. master's role is to look up and say, let's coach that too, right? Mm-hmm. And even leadership, really, because they're supposed to be coaching the organization. Yeah, what but is that, that, but that, that yeah, is your people. leadership. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's right. your leadership in, the, in, right. in your little tiny corner of the organization. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem is even for scrum masters who do feel comfortable to coach, they might not have access to senior leadership, right. depending on how many layers right. are in between. It's a by, by organizational design, by the yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. You, gotta, you gotta climb up out of that and overcome that somehow. I don't. Just reach that yeah. escape velocity. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, because I'm a product. I'm just like, oh, red flag. Oh my God, a red flag. We gotta do something. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's put a cap in this Please. by simply just covering What's next for you? Like, where, where do you see a career going next? Where would you yeah. like it to go? Do you want to get into podcasting? That's what we're asking. That's right. <laughs> for me, it's, again, just kind of continuing the journey. I'm back into product ownership, so I'm looking to see what difference I can make in the world, making things more accessible, technology more accessible, which is a fantastic mission. So mm-hmm. I, I'm going to go along that journey for a while, and I'll inspect and adapt and... We'll see where the road leads. Fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We've really enjoyed having you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you for the two of you that stayed with us thus far. Subscribe and smash that like button down below. It's it's that button, but down there. Whoa, what what hand sign are you giving? Oh, okay. That one. I saw it out of the corner of my eye. It could have been any finger. 